Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's Sunday the 3rd of August 1941 and in an RAAF aircrew training camp at Victor Harbour in South Australia, new recruit Brian Wibberley of Tumby Bay sits down to write home to his mum and family. Dear all, I haven't heard from you since I wrote last, but I think I'm a letter behind. I don't know what I've told you, so I might tell you the same things again. All the new chaps are beginning to enjoy life better. Most of them were sorry that they joined for the first few days, but it is getting a lot better now. Brian Wibberley, who's 5'9", slender, with dark hair and dark eyes, looks younger than his 18 years. And Brian's boyishness really comes through in this letter, as he worries a little about having dental work done and getting his inoculations. Then there's this, about him getting used to being out of home. I have never realised what a rotten job washing is. I can imagine how you must hate Monday with a big wash. It was bad enough, just a few things. Brian closes his letter with, Well, I can't think of anything more at present, so I will say cheerio. Lots of love, Brian. Over the next four years, in 97 further surviving letters, Brian will have a lot more to say about becoming a pilot, flying spitfires, and seeing his mates die. And even as he keeps growing towards his adult height of just over six feet, the boy's dark hair will start to go grey on its way to white. When he returns to Australia, older than his years, Brian Wibberley won't talk much about the war. But eight decades later, his daughter Sue Northey will find these 98 letters, read and transcribe them, and come to a new understanding of her father and of the sacrifices he made in the Second World War. I'm Michael Adams and this is a Forgotten Australia Your Stories episode in which I'll be talking with Sue Northey about her dad. But first, so you can better understand what we'll be talking about, here are a few excerpts from Brian's letters. On the 8th of March 1942, we hear how he hopes that Australian air power might meet the most imminent threat. Quote, I hope the Japs hold off a while until the Yanks get a lot more crates out here. If they supply them, we will supply the pilots. Brian, who trains on Tiger Moss and on Wirraways, soon learns you don't have to go to war to die for your country. On the 5th of April 1942, he writes, We are all pretty downhearted today as one of our chaps went in yesterday. It was Jim Martins from Glenelg, a very decent chap and only about 19 too. 
crashes were common and often fatal. Training done in June 1942, Brian and his mates are keen to get to London and do their bit against the Germans. But it's easier said than done, he writes from Sydney. As you can see, we are still hanging around Sydney and look like staying here a few days. I think that the scare on Sunday night might set us back a bit. Another ship was sunk today, 35 miles from the heads, so I suppose it will be quite a while before we go. We took the girls to the pictures on Saturday night. We slept in till about 1 o'clock yesterday, and in the afternoon we went on the harbour trip on the showboat and had quite a good time. We saw the two Jap subs they pulled out of the harbour. The Japs are getting a bit cheeky, aren't they? At dinner on Sunday, the chap at our table was one of the survivors from one of the ships torpedoed the other day. He cannot swim a stroke and has been torpedoed four times. It was all very interesting to hear his experiences. He was in better sleep when it hit and the ship sunk in four minutes, so you can imagine how quickly he moved. Once Brian gets to London, in September 1942, he's homesick but excited. It is when I get so far away that I realise how well I was off and what a lovely home I had. I wish I was still in Aussie. But Brian goes on. We should be moving off from here soon, and I hear that we stand a good chance of getting on spits. The next month, he's living the dream, flying the Spitfire. It is wonderful to realise that you are flying the best kite in the world, and I really think it is too. 400 miles per hour seems strange after the old Wirraway days. As Brian's letters progress, we hear glimpses of how the war's going. 19th November, 1942. Doesn't the war news sound good? It looks as if Rommel has had it in Africa, and the Russians are also doing a wonderful job. We are all feeling very elated over our chap's success in New Guinea too. But the cost is enormous, even if Brian's account of it is matter-of-fact. On the 28th of November, 1942, he writes, I'll send you home a photo of our squadron. The two POs in the front row are an Englishman and one a New Zealander and the little Aussie standing on the left were all killed in one day. The chap standing second from the left has been scrubbed from spits and Brian Woodhead, fourth from left standing, is still in hospital. Otherwise, we are all still going strong. Killed, wounded or scrubbed from the squadron. This was the day to day. But they lived for it and Brian's concern seemed to be how tough his family was doing it back home. On the 10th of January 1943, quote, Till now, I never realised what a rotten thing war is. Here we are, all having the time of our lives and having new experiences, and if we do happen to go, it is quite willingly. This talk about the heroes who give up their lives is a lot of bunkum. It is you at home who have all the suffering, taking it so wonderfully, who deserve all the credit. Brian had a close call later that month. I had the first prang of my flying career yesterday. There was a pretty strong crosswind blowing across the runway, which blew me off the runway and into the mud. I was unlucky and struck a pretty wet patch and turned over onto my nose. Luckily, I didn't go right over on my back. I just got a bit of a bump on the top of my head where I hit the hood and a bit of skin off my shins on the rudder bar. Both the flight commander and the CO told me that it was hard luck, so I don't think I'll get in any trouble. Brian knew he was lucky compared with mates who'd wound up in the bombers. Quote, Most of the bomber boys have finished their first tour of ops, which is 30 trips, but there doesn't seem to be many who got right through. Quite a lot went on their first couple of trips. They started at a very bad time when our losses were very heavy. Quite a few bought it on the Stettin do, which they tell me was very shaky. There is no doubt we have a much easier job than they have these days. Still, I suppose our turn will really come when we invade the continent, which I hope is not far off. Except, in November 1943, Brian and his best mate from Australia, John Goldsworthy, nicknamed Goldie, get some very bad luck indeed. Quote, It appears that our government has agreed to supply so many instructors to the RAF and two had to come off our squadron. After a lot of arguing, the four of us decided to toss up and poor old Goldie and myself lost, so it won't be long now before we are off to Scotland for a flying instructor's course. Brian and Goldie are not happy about this at all. Brian is bereft at having to leave his beloved kite. 
I've been taking my old spit up the last few days and really throwing her around. It will probably be the last flip in a spit for a long time. Arthur Robert, as they say in the newspapers, is my kite and she's a really lovely kite. She is nowhere near the best kites on the squadron, but there is no other kite like your own. I've got a kangaroo with boxing gloves on punching Hitler in the jaw on one side and the squadron crest on the other. One of our fitters is very good at that sort of thing and he has made a really good job. Still, someone else will be taking her over soon. At this point, Brian has only seen a German fighter shot down. He doesn't appear to have been in close combat himself and he hasn't got any confirmed kills. But he and Goldie make the most of Scotland. And in December 1943, they celebrate Brian turning 21. Quote, I've done quite a bit of flying with Goldie and we have had some very good times up there together. The weather up here in Scotland has been perfect. Very strange for this time of the year. Goldie and myself are going down to London on a 48-hour pass. It took a lot of trouble, but we eventually got it. What followed in London was a bang-up squadron dinner, partly to celebrate Brian turning 21 and officially becoming a man. But just a month later, this man has to sit down to write the hardest letters of his life. My old friend Goldie, whom I have known since we were at Daniloquin together and with me on the squadron, was killed last Thursday. To make it worse, another special friend of mine was in the back seat and was killed too. That was Johnny Harris, an Englishman and a really fine chap. The three of us were the best of friends and we were practically inseparable. Wherever one of us was, the other two would be there too. The three of us shared a room together and you can imagine how rotten it is to wake up in the morning and see the other two empty beds. Another Englishman who used to knock about with us a fair bit has moved in now and he is a really nice chap too. I want to get Goldie's wife's address so I can write to her. I'm not very good at that sort of thing, but I'll do my best. Give my love to all at home. Brian's life and the war must go on, and for him that means longing to be back in a fighter squadron while stressing about a job that he feels is actually far more taxing. I've got all English boys now. They are all very decent lads, but seem very young to me. Listen to the old man talking. I've got a few grey hairs around the temples. I'm sure that it's this instructing. It is a terrible responsibility, and this training command is rotten right through. If your pupil prangs, they do everything in their power to try and incriminate you. They look up the records and see that you didn't give him a spin for a fortnight and practically accuse you of killing him. Through the rest of 1944 and into 1945, we hear how the war is going. Both the good, such as the Allied advance across Europe, and the bad, such as the buzz bombs raining down on England and that Allied offensive becoming bogged down in the winter. There's a sense of exhaustion in these letters. Brian's been away from home for over three years and out of Australia nearly as long. But his life is enlivened by the presence of his girlfriend, a Yorkshire lass named Molly, who's serving in the Land Army. Yet hanging over everything is the question of what comes next. On the 3rd of March 1945, Brian writes, I took Molly to the dance on Saturday and we had a very good time. She is a very nice kid, but that's all she will ever be to me. She lives in Yorkshire and I know you would like her very much. I think that if I hadn't made my mind up to go home single, I could like her a lot more. But apart from the best of families, I haven't much more to offer anyone. I suppose it's about time I started thinking seriously about what I am going to do when it's all over. Just over two months later, on the 14th of May, it is over. Well, what a wonderful week this has been. I can hardly realise that I will be going home very soon. All I am doing now is waiting around for a posting to the repatriation centre at Brighton and then it shouldn't be long before I am on a boat and home. Still, you will think I have aged about 10 years, in looks anyway. I look a really old man now and everyone takes me for 26 or 27. In the official photos in Brian's military file, he looks like a boy. I'm here with his daughter Sue. Sue, how do those pictures make you feel? It really 
makes me understand just how young he was and you know he'd been a country boy growing up in Tumby Bay had been to boarding school in Adelaide but basically joined up you know straight from boarding school without much life experience and it makes me just see a completely different side of dad that I didn't growing up. What was your dad to you growing up? Dad was a very loving father he wasn't the one you went to to talk over your problems. Mum was a great talker. (laughs) Whereas I always thought when Dad gave me a hug that I was safe and that there was nothing in the world that could could harm me. He was quite tall. He'd grown while he was away. He was quite a big man. And when he enclosed you in his arms, you, you sort of felt so safe and secure. He lived life to the full. And I think that was partly his experiences during the war made him glad that he lived because he'd lost so many mates and saw so many other people lose their lives that um, he was always doing things and enjoying things and um, living life to the full outside his work. What did you know about his early life and his war service? Dad spoke very little about both both his early life and his war, war service. He was very much living in the present and with us and different things and I suppose He'd left Tumby Bay and was living in Newcastle, working at the BHP and, um, yeah, very much focused on what was in front of him in his life. I think he he pushed the war to the back. It was not something like, you know, some people dwell on it and things, but Dad, it was, it had happened and he, I, I don't know how much he thought about it. It, it came out at times, though, he... He would march at Anzac Day, but it was always a time when mum and dad had a bit of an argument because he'd have a few drinks. So you knew that he had been in the war. I mean, he's there marching at Anzac Day. Did you know he'd been a Spitfire pilot? I I did. I can remember telling friends. And when mum and dad retired, and they retired fairly early, they had two 10-month stints in England. And... Dad had never been interested in travel and I suppose that was because so much of his travel was based on his wartime experiences. But when they did go back, he did actually start talking about it a bit more, but by that stage I'd left home and was living in Sydney and they were in Newcastle. Um, he went to a squadron reunion while he was... And he took mum to quite a few of the places where he'd been. So in later in life, he did start talking about it a bit. And... Um, I must admit when he was in hospital and and dying and on fairly high levels of morphine he was spitfires that he saw flying across the wall even though he was quite lucid he'd suddenly say oh there goes another squadron of spitfires so it was obviously an important part part of his life but part that he kept very much to himself. Now, in the 98 letters that he wrote between August 1941 and June 1945, we have a real chronicle of where he was and what he did. When did you first know of these letters? I didn't really come across them until I was going through things after my mother had passed away, and she passed away quite a few years after Dad. Mum never talked about them much, and I think... Mum and Dad had a very special relationship and Mum was quite jealous of that relationship and sharing it. And in his letters, Dad does talk about a lot of his different girlfriends in different parts of England, Scotland and WAF and um, Land Army girls and things. And I don't know if Mum, it was part of her life with Dad that she wasn't part of. So she didn't talk about them a lot. I think she must have got them... Um, when people were going through my grandmother's things and she'd, she'd kept hundreds of letters from all different people. So they must have been sent to mum, I think, after dad had passed away. It was only when I was going through mum's things that I really found them and started delving into them. What was reading the letters like? It was seeing a completely different side of dad and feeling just so sorry for what, he'd been through and basically the tragedy of war in general you know it just is devastating to see a young man have to go through what what he went through and then you know all the people that lost their lives as well I was 
Really sad, though, that I didn't get to read them while he was still alive because I would have loved to talk to uh, you know him about a lot of them and find out more about lots of the things that he talks about in the letters. Tell us about who he was writing to, his mother. What was she like? He, he was writing to her, but I suppose replying to quite a few letters from his brothers and sisters and father as well. But she, I think she was the one that, that wrote all the time. It, it was sad in a way because she continued to live at Tumby Bay until my grandfather retired as the GP there and then they moved to Adelaide. So, of course, we'd always lived in Newcastle. I didn't really get to know my grandmother as well as I would have liked, but, you know, I can remember her as a very generous lady and involved and very, very intelligent. She'd actually trained as a teacher and she was very well read and loved music and um yeah very generous and I get the impression reading the letters and also talking to my aunt like I think she she, within Tumby Bay she was the center of the community she was involved in the church and the Red Cross and all different different things a very strong part of the community and very community-minded she, um, in one letter, Dad talks about a train, her plane spotting. <laughs> I can't imagine many enemy planes flying over Tumpy Bay in South Australia, but obviously she was doing some plane spotting. She, um, yeah, ev- you know, when I, I did see her, she was always, always loving and um, Dad continued to write to her right throughout his life once a week. So he had a very good relationship with her and, you know, a special relationship that continued on. You can imagine that with your grandmother being so central to Tumby Bay that the contents of these letters were known to many, many people in the community. They would have all been interested in how he was getting on. That That's right. I think I was, you sent me a clipping from the local paper where they were talking about, about, about what he was up to. And um, I've actually been in touch with the Tumby Bay Museum and I'm going to go there later this year and hand over the letters and my um, transcripts of them. Um, And they've mentioned, you know, that the Wibbly family, well, my grandfather was the doctor there, then Dad's brother David took over as doctor. So they've been a very strong part of the Tumby Bay community. And Dad's letters give you a really good insight into life in Tumby Bay. His younger brother David is there and you see all the comments and all the activities he's doing and... Um, mentions lots of people in Tumby Bay. So I think people there will find them very interesting too. Now you mentioned transcribing the letters. Reading them is one thing, but transcribing them is a deeper level. What did what really struck you about them as you went through them that methodically? Just how young he was and unworldly. You used to often think, of, you know, some of his comments and things like that sort of, I think, oh, I can't imagine Dad saying that, but... It's a completely different generation. And, yeah, you do think about it in a lot more detail. Having typed them up, I've also read them out to Dad's sister, who's just turned 95. She lives in Adelaide and she's loved hearing the letters and she's been filling me in of a lot more details of the people, you know, he's the headmaster at the school or they live next door and, you know, so we've it's given both of us so much pleasure, actually not just me typing them up, but then discussing them and going through someone that's she just loves, you know, it's been a real source of pleasure reading them to her and talking about them and she then has given me lots of memories of what she, of dad, different things, you know. When she started school, him looking after and peddling her to school her to school on his bike and yeah so it's really the typing of them and then going through them with her has really added another level of detail and memories and all sorts of things so I want to try and incorporate some of those into the letters as well some of those memories of that Judy's been able to pass on to me as well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did reading the letters change the way that you looked at World War II? It did. It showed me a lot of the devastation, but it also showed me just how strong a lot of the people were and how life, like, Dad <laughs> seemed to some weeks go to three or four dances at the local village as all that have a dance at the sergeant's mess and lots of things that I thought just wouldn't wouldn't happen. But just how strong the people were and the community and the support and how well looked after the pilots were and appreciated. I've been a strong anti-war person all my life and it's reinforced that very much, just looking at such a personal, you know, dad at one stage, the two people that he's sharing a room with are both killed in the same crash and dad's got to come back to that room. One of them was a one that dad trained with in Australia and had been right, right through overseas and that dad was extremely close to and him talking about trying to write a letter to this man's wife. It, it's that very personal part of war. You know, you hear the statistics of how many deaths, but when you relate it to, to that happening. But also the kindness. One of the English pilots then took Dad under his wing at that point and started taking him back to his family back in London. And um, there was about 50 relatives that all lived in quite close vicinity and they'd have parties and they'd all put their rations together to make sure that dad was well fed he used to feel quite guilty that he was using up their rations but they really took him under under their wing what i love about the letters is you know we do get these glimpses of the big historical events but it's all the little things and some of them are just you know very sort of small but very vivid so in one sentence talking about his training in australia in victor harbour He's talking about going into a gas chamber and then in the next minute he's talking about unloading a food truck. It's very much, I suppose, yeah, part is his age, he keeps saying the letters, but just the way his thoughts are coming in and, yeah, it's that real mix. Like he was in Sydney when the, the Japanese subs sub, um, came came into the harbour and things, but but then it's quite mundane talking about his cold or, or what's what's going on. So it is that it is as you say that real the big things and then the little things just just coming through as well. But it kind of also brings home the fact that it was a job. Your roommates have just been killed, but you're not getting any compassionate leave. You've got to get up the next morning Don't. and you've got to fly again. Mm. I think he very much. That comes across in a lot of the letters where a few times he does get get a bit emotional and sort of says, look, if anything happens to me, don't be sad. I'm doing what I want to do, you know. I'm, and he, in, during training, he's always petrified about being scrubbed because it, it what, it's what he wants to do for the country. And, yeah, he recognises that, yeah, that... Well, that anything could happen to him, but he he really he, he resents so much when he's forced to become an instructor and taken off the Spitfire squadron, because he you know he's over there to fly Spitfires and to do the fighting, not to be training. You know, he says I could have done that in Australia. I'm here, and he goes to all sorts of people and talks to them to try and get back on um, operations because that's what he wants to do. And even when he's at Brighton about to come home, he's thinking that maybe he'll be able to get back into a squadron to fight the Japs because that part of the war's continuing. So obviously there was a real sense of duty and that, that it was, you know, so important and whatever happened to him, it was what, what he wanted to do and what was important to him. Well, what I also found extraordinary was that being a trainer was harder in some respects because you had to get up at dawn, fly all day, basically till dusk every single day whereas if you're in a squadron you were sitting around a lot of the time and then you were scrambled and then it was on for an hour or two but then you had the rest of the time sort of free to do as you as you wanted to do so it was a different life being a trainer but obviously very dangerous too he 
Yes, I think he actually found, found it far more difficult. In a few letters he talks about that if one of your students has a crash, then you're held responsible. And so making the decision of when they go solo, particularly night flying and things like that, and Dad had a few, he had a, a Czech pilot that he was training and Turkish pilots, so quite often the language and different things. And so it wasn't just you that you're looking after you look you've got to make decisions for these other people and if anything happens to them then then it's your he personally would have felt responsible but the air force really would have made him feel responsible as well very quickly after brian starts he experiences the loss of his first comrade during training in australia in april of 1942 you kind of get the sense in these letters don't you that death is always just one mistake away that's for sure, yeah. And, yeah, he he doesn't dwell on it too much, I suppose, writing to his mother. But I still, every time there was that mention, I know I felt a bit sick in the stomach that he had to go, you know, go through that and it's just reinforcing how dangerous it is. And, like, for an 18, 19, 20-year-old as he was, you know, with very little life experience that... Um, it must have, yeah, been a real shock and must have been very hard at times. You're here, so you know how it turns out. Brian survived. But even so, like when you read about his first prang, as he calls it, it, did your sort of stomach tighten a little bit? It, it does, yeah. And the fact, I keep thinking how lucky I am to be here, that he did lose the ballot and became an instructor, even though that was still dangerous. It was less dangerous than being in the squadron and like he comments on a lot of people that he trained with that became bomber pilots and he regularly sort of comments that you know a lot that he trained with that were the bombers were really hard hit that they just kept sending sending them over and um, a lot didn't make it through their first first tour so yeah I think I'm very blessed (laughs) that 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 he got through and um, yeah that the luck that he was assigned to Spitfires rather than bombers and that he was taken off the, the, the Spitfires. So, um, yeah, and even in the letters he mentions quite often a lot of the mates that he grew up with in um, Tumby Bay, not necessarily pilots, but that different people had been lost. So, yeah, it was very much part, part of life and very hard for me to relate just what that must have been like. Like you say, the toss of a coin decided mm. that he and Goldie would go to Scotland and become trainers rather than stay in the squadron. Yes. I mean, that was a matter of life and death, both for your father and for Goldie. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about the what-ifs of that one that, coin toss. That, yes, for sure. Mentioning the bombers, that's another thing I think is extraordinary in the letters is they're not just about him and your family. They're about the other people that he meets and I found it incredibly poignant, his description of the surviving crew of the Lancaster bombers. And these are the guys who've made 30 flights. And there's very few of them who've actually made it to 30. And the ones who have, he actually is boarding with at one point, And he kind of calls them nutters because they're so psych- psychiatrically disturbed by what they've gone through as gunners in the planes, being unable to do anything except sit there for nine hours waiting to shoot or be shot at. Oh, yes. He, he does, yeah, he gives you an insight in, into different... And some of them going to the Middle East, just... It it amazes me how wherever he goes on leave, and particularly to London, he seems to meet up with different people that he's trained with. And then even at Brighton, when he's leaving, he meets up with someone he trained with that had been in a prisoner of war camp. And, you know, the, the contact that he seems to be able to to keep track of a lot of the people that he trained with, that the fact that not just letters from Australia, he seems to be corresponding a lot. I, I think in in London, going to Australia House, it seemed to be a real meeting spot for, you know, all the Australians over there. And when he was on leave in London, he'd quite often, often catch up with different different people and hear the news of other people and things like that. Brian's trained in Australia on Tiger Moss and on Wirraways, and then he's got the ship finally over there, which is that there's a big delay there because Japanese are sinking ships off the Mm. east coast of Australia. Finally makes it to London. 
He's training there on Miles Master monoplanes, two-seaters, and he's just itching, itching to get into a Spitfire. But then when he does, he can't actually say it out loud in the letter, that first letter to his mum. He has to say, oh, that thing I told you about last letter? Oh, I'm doing it now. (laughs) How excited is he at that point? Oh, he just, yeah, that was obviously... You know, obviously all the pilots talk about all, all the planes and the Spitfires, you know, just were it. And I think leaving the squadron, part of it was leaving the Spitfires too. And he did get to go up to Scotland and do an aim firing course and got to fly the Spitfires again for a bit. They obviously just were in a different class to all the other planes and were were what, you know, what he was really keen to fly at one stage he mentions that some Spitfire squadrons had been sent to Australia obviously to fight the Japanese and he would have loved to, to do that I think because the, the Spitfires were just the pinnacle but um, yeah obviously just flying those he he just just loved them. Of course what he was doing in Scotland was incredibly valuable because you know the men he's training are then going on to, f- to fly Spitfires and to fight the Germans and eventually the Japanese as well. But I guess being, you know, 19, 20 and then 21, that kind of thinking is not necessarily inherent to you. You kind of want to be there doing it on the front line as opposed to look, stepping back and looking at the possibly even bigger contribution you're making as a, as a trainer. Yeah, I, I think that's... He didn't have that insight but I, I think the thing he pushes too is that if he was going to be a trainer he could have done that in Australia and it comes across so strong the his family ties and his family was so close like a lot you know when he talks about picturing them at Christmas time and you know all, all sitting with the the washing basket full of the presents and his mum just saying how lovely everything is and like the swimming at Tumby Bay and the lifestyle like he he had a wonderful childhood and I think he really enjoyed boarding school he was really into sport and so it just made me reinforced yeah that he would have much preferred if he was going to be a trainer to do it in Australia so that he could still get home to see his family and be part of that that family connection Whereas you know, sort of over in in England, training and things wasn't wasn't what he'd signed up to do. <laughs> yeah, his aching homesickness really comes through, and that kind of was something I hadn't really considered is the, the immense sacrifice just being away for you know three years at that time of your life. Yes, and, and you know, relatives. His grandfather dies. Other relatives die while he's away. He can do nothing to console his mother, his his family. And at one point he actually writes to them in regard to that sort of stuff and says, we're having a fine time here. You guys are the heroes. You guys are making the real sacrifices. Do you think he believed that or was he trying to make them feel better and perhaps to worry less about him? I think a bit of both. Like he, yeah, as I said, he continued writing to his mother every week right up till she she died. And the the family, he, he didn't want to be a worry for them. That was very important and... Um, yeah, I think, but at the at the same time, like I think he 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 felt himself lucky too when he looked at how a lot of other people in England were living, and even when he's coming home, like you know that they've they've had to make so many sacrifices, and you know sort of just the devastation with a lot of the bombing in different places, and what what the general population in terms of food and things like that. As a pilot, I think they were reasonably well looked after in terms of food and different things like that. And he realised that he was luckier than, than a lot of lot of people living through the war and what they'd had to sacrifice. So, um, yeah, a bit of a combination. He was also very prescient in recognising that he was lucky that he was going back to Australia because... The English, Welsh, Scottish men that he'd served with and the women uh, were about to be in for a very tough time post-war. It was a very perceptive analysis of what was going to come after everyone had the ticker tape parades and uh, had VE Day. Things weren't going to go back to normal any time soon. No, that's that's correct. And there, that sort of caught me by surprise because here he was about to come home, which, yeah, he'd obviously been so homesick the whole time that yeah 
still thinking of the people that that were left behind and um including molly yes <laughs> dear so, molly <laughs> dear molly so there's one girl who stands out she's from yorkshire i believe and yes. she's in the land army so at one point you know he says i'm going about to go back home and she, poor thing she's still out there planting potatoes and it seems like a, a fairly sad farewell to some extent but he's he's vowed that he's going to go home single and he's going to stick to that he has he 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 says i think how much his mother would like molly and how special she was but and like they go to dances a few times a week walk miles sometimes to go to these dances but he he makes it clear in the letters that he've always told molly that that he's going home that he can't get involved and that you know that it's a friendship and in enjoying it but and making the statement I've got nothing to offer you know he's he's not sure what he's going home to do he's got no like he's been flying planes but he's got no formal training for a career or what he's going to do when he gets home and he he doesn't feel he can offer that to anyone that he's got to get his life you know he's got to start thinking of what he's going to do post post-war and um so poor molly <laughs> i can't think i'd really like to find out what molly ended up doing <laughs> things that i don't think uh, the only mention is molly there's no last name or apart from the fact that she's from yorkshire but, um, in another universe she's your mother that's right it's, it really is an extraordinary what if isn't it it is but obviously i think that was the longest relationship he had and there was obviously a strong fondness between them but um yeah in his last letter on the 16th of june 1945 and brian writes well that seems to be about all for this one which will i hope be the last one before i am on the boat i will be seeing you soon until then give my love to all all my love brian isn't that lovely and then he's he's on the way home Um, it's it's lovely my aunt judy she was at boarding school and she can still remember the train pulling in she was on someone's shoulders, I think it was probably a father's shoulders at the train station, and seeing Dad get off, off the train. It, and she said she can still remember they all went back to one of my great-aunt's place on South Terrace and had a little celebration, but then the younger ones went off to the movies. <laughs> so, so that was Dad's homecoming. But she said she can still remember being up on someone's shoulders and waving and shouting as Dad got off the train, just the excitement. I can just imagine how Dad must must have felt too. It would have been such a special occasion. And bittersweet in the sense that, you know, he was lucky and so many others weren't. That's right. A lot from Tumbi Bay. His cousin John, who was in the Air Force, didn't, didn't make it. His sister Mary lost her fiancé, another John who Dad had met. So, yeah... The fact that that he had made it and was home must have just been, yeah, a bit pinching yourself. (laughs) And to the happy ending, when did he meet your mum and what was the rest of his life like? Dad was very good, became very good friends with mum's father and and used to go and play tennis. Mum's father was a country doctor as well, but lost his wife and his son during the war and had moved to Adelaide. And mum was quite a bit younger than dad, but I think the relationship just sort of built up. He used to come and play tennis at the weekends when he was studying at university. And, um, but they had an extremely close relationship. They um, just loved doing things together. I can remember mum's sister saying to mum, you shouldn't do everything with Brian, you know, you know, when one of you goes, you'll be completely lost. And mum's response was, but we're happiest doing things together. So why should we force ourselves not to be happy now? Because we won't have each other later. After they retired, they had two 10-month stints based in London and travelling around on Eurail passes and catching buses and trains all around Scotland and different things. She said that was the happiest times of their lives when they could just concentrate on each other they had an extremely close relationship mum never talked about the letters and I wonder if you know that was part of dad's life that she was not part of at all and that not hurt but it was you know she felt a bit envious and jealous and particularly because he had quite a few different girlfriends along the way but um yeah no they 
they had a very special relationship and mum was a very strong person. She, um, yeah, she moved from Adelaide to Newcastle. Dad wasn't sure what to do when he came back from the war and one of his mates, well, they suggested medicine, but he used to pass out at BHP safety films because of the blood and things. So he decided that medicine probably wasn't for him and he ended up doing metallurgy and working at the BHP in Newcastle. So mum sort of left, you know, Adelaide where they lived in the in the nice suburbs with lots of trees and moving into a house, a company house across the road from the steelworks where if the wind was blowing in certain directions she couldn't put any washing on the line. So it was quite a change in lifestyle for her moving to Newcastle. But I don't she didn't didn't ever regret it or um yeah. They had a nice life together and both both active in lots lots of ways and very good parents. We had a great childhood doing lots of lots of sport and things together. On the twelfth of May nineteen forty three, your dad wrote, I haven't done much more than see a few Jerry's in the distance yet, but the time will come soon. I have at least seen one shot down from a grandstand seat. My feelings were a bit mixed, but I was glad to see him bail out. I don't know whether Jerry fished him out of the drink, but I don't suppose he did. They aren't quite as good at that as we are. This is your father watching a German pilot very likely die and having mixed emotions about it. How did you feel about that? It made me think he was always like um, a very loving person and it would have, like, he was looking forward to shooting down a plane, but I can imagine him then having terribly mixed emotions about another young man, yeah, similar age to him being lost. So perhaps it was a blessing that he didn't end then, up staying with Fighter Squadron. I, I think so. Like, you know, for his, all the bravado. For his mental well-being, yes, yeah. The bravado and different things like that, obviously, you know, to be one, Dad liked to be one of the boys and to, you know, to do well at things that he would have, you know, liked to have, you know, being able to say he shot down planes. But as you say, I think the long-term, you know, the fact that it, that he didn't actually <laughs> shoot someone down, you know, I think it's probably probably allowed him to, to live a different sort of life. And as I say, he, he didn't dwell on the war and he, he really took every opportunity. He was always doing lots of things outside work and um, living life to the full and part of that being thankful that he had had made it through and without I suppose there were some scars there but yeah it wasn't that scar of knowing that he'd taken human life which um, must must be so difficult you know for so many people. Did you find moments of real beauty in some of his letters? I mean he said that he wasn't very good with a pen but I disagree. Yeah some of his descriptions particularly he'd obviously being in England for the first time and seeing different parts of it, it obviously took his breath away and his descriptions of some of the things are really, really lovely, I think. Quite simple, not mm. but but quite detailed and you, you you does paint a picture for you, which is lovely. There's one on the sixth of April nineteen forty four, which I really really struck me. I'll just read a little bit of it. It is a perfect evening here, just like the summer evenings we get at home. There is not a cloud in the sky and no wind at all. Everything is so quiet and beautiful. We are fairly well out in the country here, about two miles to the nearest village. The crops are just starting to come up now, and out of my window everything looks so delightfully green and young. I've just finished tea, and as we don't start flying till quarter to ten, I've got a couple of hours in which to sit here looking out of the window and wishing it was our sleep-out windows and I was looking out over the old Tumby Hills. It's just a, it really paints a, just a beautiful, peaceful little interlude in all of this sort of carnage and tension, doesn't yes. it? Yes, and just again reinforcing some of his homesickness that that it's it's beautiful, but it is bringing back those memories of of his life back home and the things he misses. Brian, your father was also not afraid to admit that he was afraid. There's one letter in November 1944 where he says, "We have been fairly free of air raids since I've been down, but we have had the odd buzz bomb over." I have not heard any really close yet, but have heard and felt quite a few explode in the distance. A couple have chugged overhead, and it is not a nice feeling, wondering whether the motor is going to cut out. I was scared stiff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, 
it's interesting the things he feels he can talk to his mum about. Like, he doesn't seem to mind talking about all the different girlfriends and staying up till 2 o'clock in the morning or, or walking, doing Hogmanay in Scotland, you know. But obviously there was a closeness there with that he continued writing letters and that, that you know, it sort of, yeah, every Sunday night when we were kids he'd always write to his mum. There was, there was a special relationship there. The fact that he... He felt he could admit that he was was scared, and that, but yeah. So he probably didn't broadcast it from the town hall in Tumby Bay, but no, no, it is. It's a it's a nice, honest admission. And God, who wouldn't be scared with you know a bomb that might or might not just drop on you? Oh, the whole. I just I just find it so hard to imagine at that age. You know, just. But I suppose reading them too. I I was rereading some of them today. I couldn't stop thinking about like all the places around the world that are still in war and those poor people in Ukraine and just what they're going through. And I, I know it's not just Ukraine, but it's just devastating that yeah, the wars do end all wars like <laughs> definitely haven't and that there's still so many places where people are going, you know, and even younger than Dad in a lot of different different countries you know in Africa and things like that where really young kids are are fighting and you know so many lives are lost and things it's just uh yeah it it sort of opened makes you stop and think about about different things as well there's people behind those headlines and news clips yeah yeah you sort of hear it but sort of seeing someone's first-hand experiences sort of makes you think more about the first-hand experiences of other people that they're going through today. Mm. I suppose it just makes me realise how fortunate I really am, you know, that um, that I don't live in some of these other places. But um, a bit bit scared with some of the people in the, <laughs> who have got a lot of power in the world and what could end up happening, but um, you can't live your life worrying about that. That's right. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who will be very keen to see these letters in Tumby Bay in the near future. Thank you very much, Michael. I've really enjoyed it too. Cheers. <laughs> I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.